As we turn our attention to God's Word this morning, we'll find ourselves at the very end of Romans chapter 11 and the beginning of Romans chapter 12. And this morning, as Paul begins in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, he begins how we started this morning. We sang a song that if you've grown up in church, you've probably known since you crawled around. The doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him creatures here below. And as Paul is composing the book of Romans, he has really done some interesting things. Romans in the New Testament is the densest theological book in the entire New Testament. I mean, Romans lays out what the gospel is perhaps with greater clarity than any other book of the Bible. We can just go through a couple verses here. In the first three chapters of Romans, Paul talks about the sin and misery that all of humanity finds themselves in. Romans 3.23, you know that verse? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If, Romans, if Rome, the book of Romans ended in chapter 3, there would be no good news. But the truth is we need bad news for the good news to be good. We need contrast. We need a dark background to make the light of the gospel more brilliant. And so in chapters 4 through 11, he begins to talk about the fact that, yes, we are stuck in sin and misery, but God has made provision through Christ for us to be delivered from our sin. That's wonderful news. Romans 10, verse 9, says, If we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So in the book of Romans, very dense theologically, Paul is laying out both the tremendous gravity of being sinners, but then the tremendous glory that is ours if we will repent and trust Christ as our King. And so as Paul is composing this letter, he's just overcome as he is composing This treatise. And when he gets to chapter 11, verse 33 through 36, it's like he has to put his his quill down, his pen down, and he has to push back from the table, and he just has to worship and say, God, thank you so much for making a way where there was no way. He marvels at God's salvation. And in this, Paul, here at the very beginning sets a superior example for us. I don't think anyone who's read the book of Romans would doubt that Paul was a deep thinker. But Paul would be the first one to say that deep thoughts about Christianity are worthless unless deep theological thinking is joined with passionate worship. Here, Paul is the most cerebral, perhaps intelligent writer of the New Testament, and he has to stop and just say, Oh my goodness, God is good. And so the truth is, if our Bible study and our doctrine don't drive us to worship, something is broken. If we don't come out of Bible study, if we don't come out of worship wanting to worship more, something is wrong. And so I invite you to read with me verses 11, or chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, and see what Paul praises God for in these verses. The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom 
and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul starts in verse 33 by being astonished at God's richness. And he says specifically that God is rich in a couple specific ways. It says, uh, look right there in your copies of the scripture. He is rich both in wisdom and in knowledge. I've seen contestants on Jeopardy. They know a lot of stuff. Don't want to play them in Trivial Pursuit. Are they rich in knowledge? Not compared to God. Knowledge is what God knows. And God is rich in what He knows. He knows all things. But God is rich in wisdom. What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Well, knowledge is knowing stuff. And wisdom is knowing how to take that knowledge and work it out. And God is rich in His character. He knows all things. And He knows the right thing to do with the things that He knows. God is rich in character. But he doesn't stop there. He says, not only is he rich in wisdom and in knowledge, but he says, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Well, if wisdom and knowledge are talking about God's character, who he is, his judgments and his unfathomable ways talk about what he does. So Paul is saying here, God is wonderful in his character and he is above questioning in his actions. He has integrity. And he just has to say, guys, listen, I need to take a break here to stop writing because I need to worship. And I need to say, God, you're wonderful. You are awesome. And the point that he is making here, our first point in our outline, is that through these verses, Paul is reminding us that the most ultimate priority in our worship is that God must be the central focus. God must be the central focus. He does several things here. He asks a couple rhetorical questions in verses 34 and 35. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Who knows more than God? If God got called up to go on who wants to be a millionaire, who's going to be his phone friend? Uh, I don't know math real well. No one. When God wants to do something, and he looks at his bank account and says, man, I'd really like to add that addition to my patio. I don't got it. Hey, Will, you got some money I can borrow? I'll give you an IOU. Does God have to do that? Not at all. No one knows more than God. No one has more than God. God is wonderful. And through these rhetorical questions, he's just holding up a beautiful picture of who God is in his character and in his actions. He concludes in verse 36 by reminding us of something that we often forget. Look at verse 36. It says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. God is our origin. We come from him. We don't come from primordial 
sludge. We don't come from a soup of chemicals that just happen by chance to come together. God is our origin. We are from Him. God is our sustenance. We exist right now because God wants us to. None of us had to get up this morning and worry about whether the sun was going to rise. None of us had to worry about uh, how, many, how many billions of people in the world today? Is there enough oxygen for everyone? You ever think about that? You can set up a counseling appointment with me if you do. Um, that's weird. We don't have to worry about that. God sustains the life that he creates. We are through him. Friends, we are to him. He is our destination. That's why we don't worship anything else. Our car, we might love it. We might polish it three times a week. It didn't make us. It doesn't sustain us, and it's not going to judge us. And whoever does those three things is certainly worthy of our worship. As a matter of fact, the word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship. And we worship what is worthy. There's a problem. This happens in every church. And there's a continuum. And so we may not be as bad as others. As a matter of fact, there are many churches that are in worse shape than we are. But there is a constant temptation to make worship more about me than about he. Have you ever seen that happen? Now, I just want to warn you, it is okay to laugh in church. We've got a quick video to show you something that I think you'll enjoy. If we can get some audio there, that'd be help. That'd help. When I talk about laughing in church, it's not laughing at me while we have an awkward silence. <clears throat> I don't think we've got audio here. All right, well, let's do this. I will not be able to tell you with as much comic uh, punch as this video will display for you. But basically, you've got a Mr. Um, Serenade Man, Mr. Piano Man on the piano, and he's taken several of his favorite worship songs and made it about himself. So you can see, it's all about me. I exalt me. You ever sung that song? I exalt me. I exalt me. I exalt me. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I don't even know why you'd throw that last part in if you're singing about yourself. And it's a, it's a cute little video. Perhaps at another time we'll see if we can get the audio working and pop that in here for you. But the truth is, there, there comes a habit in church that we begin to get comfortable. And we begin to be happy with our comfortability. That we sing the songs that the people who have been here the longest time get to decide. That's not a problem. Listen, it is no problem to have preferences. As a matter of fact... If you were brave enough to ask our staff what they think we should do in worship, you would not get the same opinion twice. Every single one of our staff uh, members has different preferences for worship. i tell you what makes it difficult in the church is when you don't worship seven days a week, you want to fight about what we sing on one day a week. And if your personal worship is deep, then guess what? You've got more latitude on Sunday morning. Now, 
that was not in my notes, so I need to get back over here. So uh, that's the danger with getting away from the pulpit. We're going to talk about variety in worship a little bit more. But the point is this. No matter what we sing, if the gospel is present, is that not the most important thing? It is not a musical style that unites us. Listen, there isn't much that unites us socioeconomically, racially, uh, gender-wise, age-wise. We're a diverse group of people. And Pastor Will's going to have a very difficult job if his job in leading worship is to make everyone H-A-P-P-Y. Not going to happen. Somebody's going to walk out of here upset. Well, let me just state this as forcefully as I can. Worship of the one true living God is not about you and your preferences. Now, I say that in Christian love with a smile on my face. We need to sing the precious truths of the gospel. And we need to hold, we need to clench onto the gospel. But we need to hold with very open hands my style, my preference, my mood, my time. This is God's time. And God must be our central focus in worship. Now, the problem is I got in trouble with my kids this week. My kids help me preach. They, they give me editorial comments. Some really, really good. Others, not so much. When we think of worship, most of the time when we talk about worship, we think of one day of the week. Anybody know what day that is? Sunday. Now, when we think of that one day of the week and we talk about worship, are we talking about all day Sunday? No, we're talking about one part of that day. What part of the day? The worship service. And then when we talk about the worship service, are we talking about the whole worship service? No, typically when we talk about worship, most people are thinking about one part of that worship service. What part? The singing part. I think that's how you say it in South Carolina. The singing part. It's the music part. And listen, what we do musically in worship deserves our very best. Um, I love the musicians that we have. We've got a great choir. Uh, they always want to perform flawlessly. Not for you, because there's a greater audience. But when we talk about worship, man, when Paul talks about worship, while music is a very important part, we'll see that this is very far from the much fuller definition and description of worship that Paul provides. So point number two. Instead of relegating worship to 30 minutes on Sunday morning, the scope of our worship must grow more extensive. The scope of our worship must grow more extensive. Read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 with me, and let's see how this works out. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I, I never hear more foolishness than when we start to talk about spiritual things. And here's the problem. At the end of verse 1, it says... You need to be committed to your spiritual service of worship. You need to be committed to spiritual worship. That's great. Hurrah! What in the world is spiritual worship? 
Now, uh, listen, my, all my charismatic brothers and sisters, y'all just sit down. Hold on. We're not getting there just yet. We're going to get there. We're going to talk about that. Uh, but it, what is spiritual worship? I think there's a couple things for us to see here. And I tried to emphasize them in my reading of the scriptures. Uh, in verse 1, it says that we are to present something to God. What does the scripture say that we are to present to God in verse 1? We are to present our bodies. Now, look at how it says we're to present our bodies. We're supposed to present our bodies a living sacrifice, and we are supposed to present our bodies a holy sacrifice. Here's the point. In our bodies, we are to worship God with what we do with them. Now, listen, Christians get a bad rap about having a a, a real long to-do list of what we do and what we don't do. That's not really the point. The point is that we love God, and that determines what we do and don't do. We don't go around with a list checking off, well, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, didn't do this, that's good. I did this, did this, did this. That's not the point. That's not loving God. That's loving your list. That's loving your OCD-ness. That's not loving God. And so he's, he's telling us here, we're to present our bodies. The point is we are to live holy. We are to grow in our sanctification. And that is how we worship God through our body. And instead of offering, instead of providing an offering that dies on an altar once and for all, how does he say we're supposed to do this? A living sacrifice. Well, that's a really weird phrase. Because a sacrifice, according to the Old Testament, is not something that lives. It is something that you um, systematically kill. You drain its blood. It is no longer. But we're to be living sacrifices. And here's what Paul does that is just revolutionary. When he uses the word of sacrifice, what, what do uh, New Testament, formerly Jewish believers think of when he says sacrifice? They think of the synagogue, they, they think of the temple, they think of the tabernacle, they think of bowls and bloods and a bloody mess. And so what Paul has done is he has taken, taken words from the temple and he has applied it to everyday life. Because you know that bowl that you killed, you laid it out on the altar, you're supposed to do that with your life every single day. So we extend the scope of our worship by not thinking of worship as 30 minutes once a week, but by looking at worship as how we live in obedience to God, living holy lives. Now, to understand spiritual worship, we've we got to understand this. It has something to do with our bodies, what we put into them, what we, what we do with them, what they're enslaved to. We honor God in our bodies. But in verse 2, he does something different. He changes the rules. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We worship God with our minds. He says that, he tells us, you got to know what to do with your body, what not to do with your body, and that comes through your mind. And so he tells us what to do, what not to do. And the truth is, we can't normally trust our mind or our conscience to guide us. Your mind and your conscience are full of sin too. They need to be informed by the Word of God and transformed by the Spirit of God. And so somehow, as we're putting together this definition of spiritual worship, spiritual worship is bodily, spiritual worship is um, mentally, so somehow spiritually oriented worship, bodily worship, mentally worshiping, all fit together. Here's the best thing. You don't have, you've got blank space in your notes to put this. I think if we were going to draw out a math equation, Spiritual worship equals bodily worship, intellectual worship. We think about God, we receive instruction from His Word, and we live it out. That's a very different definition 
than simply talking about our singing, isn't it? Listen, our singing is important. And even this morning, my heart is so encouraged with the songs that we've sang and the energy with which we've sung it. But friends, have we really worshipped if we walk out those doors and we don't live one second for our Lord who bought us? No, we don't. We've gone through a religious ritual. We've done something that maybe is very sentimental. But the quality of our worship is never measured by our technological precision. If that was the case, we'd get an F this morning. Our worship is measured by the obedience of our lives. And we never worship God better than when we live holy and obedient lives. It doesn't matter how loud you sing. Friends, it doesn't matter if you sing in the choir. It matters if we sing. It matters if we sing with our lives. And so spirituality doesn't just have to deal with our spirit. It has to do with our bodies and our minds. And a better definition of worship is perhaps this. A wholehearted commitment of mind, will, words, deeds, and desires to the Lordship of Christ. That's my definition. You might like this definition better. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus isn't just giving you a to-do list. He's telling you how to worship God. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've got to put our all into it. And so the very first way that the scope of our worship can grow more extensive is when our worship grows our holiness. That's one of your subpoints that you'll see in your outline. When our worship grows our holiness, we must extend the scope of worship beyond one day that is just a part of our life to understanding that worship is part of every day and it's the very fiber of our being. The truth is that worship neither begins nor ends at church. It's just a chance for us to do it together. There's a temptation to treat worship kind of like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. You're Baptist. You're all guilty um, of the <laughs> gorging yourself at the all you Have you ever had the experience? Maybe it's Thanksgiving. Maybe it's not the buffet holiday meal where you are so full these words have come out of your mouth. I can't eat one more bite. You ever done that? Yeah. You have. How many times this week, Larry? I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> See, what's great is he, went, he was really not expecting that one. So that's great. We treat worship the same way. We come out of a worship service and go, man, wasn't that a great... Didn't people sing good this morning? Didn't we appreciate the word? And then we don't worship the rest of the week. Just like you lie when you say, I can't eat one more bite. Let me give you about five hours and see how you do on that. What are you going to do? You're going to eat some more. And just like you can't eat enough for the whole week physically, you can't worship enough on one day to get you through the rest of the week. So friends, one of the things that I would say to you is personal worship has got to be a priority for the people of God. That means your prayer life needs to be good. You need to find some way to be reg- spend regular time in God's Word. And you know what? I'll even tell you. Your personal worship, if you want to sing, that's okay. Now maybe Jesus talked about the prayer closet. Some of you might need to have the song closet because your family may not want to hear you. Um, that's why God gave us showers and cars. And so sing away. And sing what you want. Sing your preferences. Because we can't always honor each individual's preferences when we gather together corporately. 
And if we worship personally and privately, what effect do you think that will have on our corporate worship? I'll tell you the reason most churches sing weekly is because they only sing weekly. (laughs) If we sang praises to God in our heart all week long, it would, we'd blow the roof off. We'd blow the sound system out. We'd have incredible times when we gather together. And so the best worship is not musical perfection. I know our, our people who lead in music, they want that. That's not the goal. The best worship isn't musical perfection, but when we live holy lives. And the truth is, genuine worship should always change lives, should increase our obedience. So think with me here briefly about ways that worship, both private and corporate, changes us. Does worship make you humble? It makes me humble. I can't save myself. I can't save you. You come down at the invitation, I, got, I, I have nothing to offer you. But I know a man who has everything to offer you. I, I don't have a special gift. There's no charisma that God gives me that allows me to forgive people's sins. Jesus forgives sins. It makes me humble. Worship makes me secure. To know that my God loved me, that he made me, and that despite my rebellion, he sent his son to die for me. Listen, it's not about me at all. It's about God. That gives me security. Worship makes me grateful. Worship makes me holy. Worship has a tendency even to make me more loving, more charitable. Worship makes me more mission-minded. And that brings us to our last main point. That another way that our worship grows more extensive is when worship grows our mission field. When worship grows our mission field. Now here's, since I only have like five or ten minutes left, I go to meddling at the very end so I can get out of here and leave quick. Y'all can't catch me. You can't talk about God-glorifying worship and not talk about music. Now, I want you to understand the proportion to which we've given everything in the sermon. We've talked about our focus being on God, and we've talked about worship being more than a a one-day-a-week definition. That is absolutely what our focus has to be in those two things. We would be remiss if we didn't address the issue of musicality in worship. And so God-glorifying worship must talk about music and musical styles. And so at the outset, let me say this. Arguing about styles is self-defeating, and does not glorify God. Okay, so if you're a Gaither fan, and you're a Gaither fan, and you're a, let's get a band up on the stage. Uh, fighting about worship? Something sound weird about that to you? It does to me. It does to me. And so let me, let me throw out an analogy that I think might be helpful. Let's suppose that all of us got, get appointed to the city council. And uh, we're tasked with um, pushing through this Dave Lyle beautification project. You know, we're going we're gonna to make Dave Lyle beautiful, this whole boulevard. We're going to put pretty trees up, crepe myrtle. Well, it depends on who you are. Because, you know, over here, we get people that want crepe myrtles. And people over here, they want something bigger and more stately. You know, let's put oak trees up. Give lots of shade. Be awesome. Take up more space. Got to do those crepe myrtles every 10 feet. Oak trees, you know, it's more economical. And we start getting into arguments, everybody fighting for their favorite tree, their favorite shrub, their favorite bush. Here's part of the analogy you don't know. 
let's just suppose that the United States has been invaded by a foreign power and South Carolina is the last state to be resisting. And yet we're in a city council meeting fighting about what kind of trees, bushes, and shrubs to put up. If there's anything that churches should fight for, it is for the glory of God and for the purity of the gospel. Anything beyond that is negotiable. And yet we always find little things to fight about when there's much larger issues at stake. Where are the people that are fighting for holiness? Where are the people who are fighting for the Great Commission? And yet so many churches get sidetracked and fight among themselves over issues that are tremendously less important. So I'll take you briefly to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. And I'll read it. Feel free to flip there if you are so inclined. Paul says this, writing to the church at Ephesus. You are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. He does something interesting here. He talks about uh, three different styles, three different um, opportunities for us to worship. He says, we are singing, we're, we're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're not going to explain this verse totally. Let's just say that hymns are about, uh, psalms are about God. We kind of see that in our psalm book. You read the book of Psalms composed by David. They are songs about how big God is, how God is strong to rescue, how pure and holy God is. Hymns in the New Testament were about Christ specifically. What in the world were spiritual songs about? The way that the Spirit works in people's lives and brings new experiences into people's lives. Here's the thing that's interesting. God is a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Our worship, at least according to this verse, is psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. You see the connection here? Because God is diverse, three in one, our worship should be diverse. We should sing songs that extol the unchangeableness of God, the ministry of Christ, the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And so he's telling us here that our worship should be diverse because God is diverse. Why is God committed to diverse worship? Why doesn't he say, hey, listen, you got the book of Psalms, you don't need anything else. I gave you 150 of them, pick, pick some. But he says here, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. God is committed to diverse worship because he's committed to reaching all kinds of people. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. There might be people here that if we sang Southern gospel music every single Sunday, they wouldn't show up. I know, you Gator fans, you can find that hard to believe. But listen, if we did something radically more contemporary, there'd be some folks that might, might find a way to sleep in on Sunday morning. God is committed to reaching all kinds of people. And you have to understand this. Worship is missional. Worship is missional. It's a relatively new word. You see it on the board if you want to struggle with that. You have to understand this. Whom you attract is determined by what you sing. Okay, let me say that again because you need to hear that. Whom you attract is determined by what you sing. I'm not picking a fight. Let me just say this. 
If we become a hymn-only congregation, we sing old songs exclusively. Who do we attract? I'm not going to say old people. (laughs) Here's my point. You will attract Christians. Can anyone tell me a not... Go go find your non-Christian friends and ask them for their ten favorite hymns. When you commit to church music, you commit to reaching church people. There isn't any non-believer that I know that listens to church music. Okay? So I'm just saying, the hope for our church in our musical outreach is to steal people from other churches because we're singing what they're most familiar with. If we sing songs that don't sound so foreign to non-believers, we sing stuff that sounds more contemporary, guess who we have a better chance of reaching? Non-Christians. This is not an issue about old and young for me. This is a question about mission. And if we tell people, listen, you have to dress this way, you have to sing these songs, you have to do all this, what requirements does Jesus have for people to come worship him? that they come and worship him. It's Christians that make rules and say, you have, to play, you have to play by these rules if you want to worship with us. Hogwash. Jesus says, I come for the humble of heart, and if you come, come, I will take you. The problem is sometimes our churches communicate that we don't want you. Jesus does, but we don't. And so listen, this is admittedly an oversimplification. This is an oversimplification. But we will reach different crowds of people based upon what we sing. And if we want to be the church that grows by transfer growth of other church people, then we need to sing exclusively church music. If we want to be a church that reaches the unsaved, we need to sing music that doesn't sound so foreign to them. And I'll give you an illustration. I almost did this, but my wife would have absolutely killed me. Every time, I, every time I go on a foreign mission trip, I go to another country, I buy clothes. Their clothes, not our clothes. Now, I'll come back and, you know, when you do your missionary presentation, it's like an, an obligatory rule that you have to dress funny. You know, every missionary that's ever done a missionary presentation, you're going, why is that man wearing a dress? You know, what is he doing? And so I, I thought about wearing uh, a shirt that I got from Indonesia that my wife just thinks is hideous. Here's what happens. When a missionary goes to a foreign culture, why doesn't he dress the way Americans dress? He's trying to reach people, and he doesn't want his dress style to be an unintended obstacle to the message of the gospel. Friends, when I say that worship is missional, I'm not saying our preferences are bad. I'm not even saying that some of the songs that we love are bad. The the point is, we have to think, and we don't do that in the church a lot, What we say we want to be in our outreach doesn't match how we do worship. And I'm just raising the flag to say that worship is missional. Friends, we have to keep this question in the front of our mind. Who worships God? Who worships God? Do songs worship God? Do instruments worship God? Do notes on a page worship God? No, none of those things worship God. People made in his image worship God. 
And the question is, Christians who are supposed to have some level of spiritual maturity, can they sacrifice their preferences to reach people who haven't been reached yet? Can you do that? Would it be worth it to see 50 brand new baby Christians running around if we sang songs that maybe you weren't quite as comfortable with? And the question isn't whether you're comfortable with them. The question is, are you willing to get comfortable with them? Are you willing to love the gospel and the mission of the church enough to say, you know what? Maybe I need to join the senior adult choir and we get to sing whatever we want on Tuesday morning. Maybe I need to get me a Gaither DVD and watch it every Friday night. Listen, we're not telling you what you can and can't sing. It's just when we get together, the church's mission needs to be more in the forefront of our mind related to our worship. So we don't use different music. We don't use varied music because we want to keep everyone happy. Because that's, that's a lose-lose proposition to keep everyone happy in worship. We don't, we don't use diverse music styles because we're aiming at a blended service. All that does, it's an equal opportunity offender. We're going to offend the people that want to rock out and we want to, we're going to offend the people that want to sing the hymns. Blended service is an exercise in futility. It is the gospel that blends us together and not a musical style. If we split our church, if we divorce our church over musical style, we are standing against the unity that the gospel brings. It's fruitless to search for a single musical style or any blend of musical styles that will satisfy all followers of Jesus. Because when you look on a worldwide scale, the followers of Jesus are an awfully diverse bunch. And that's exactly the way that it should be. The Lord desires to have a people from every tribe and tongue and nation who stand before him. And our churches should look more like that. The diversity of God's people is exactly as it should be. So in conclusion, I would say this. Instead of being so concerned about style, we need to welcome any worship music that glorifies God. If God is glorified with it, if God is central, I may not know the tune, but my heart is going to rejoice. And you know what? My lips will catch up eventually if my heart is right. We need to welcome any music that reaches unreached people with the truths of the gospel. If gospel truth is what we say we want to sing, regardless of style, and unsaved people are hearing the gospel in the words that we sing and the pronouncements that are made from our pulpit, that's a good thing. And we need to celebrate worship that helps churches produce disciples of Jesus Christ. We've got to learn to welcome creativity that is looking for new ways to be faithful to God. We've got to banish the fears that grip us when sometimes familiar music passes away. Worship is deadly serious, isn't it? We're purporting to worship the one true living God. We say that we believe the Great Commission is the charter of every Baptist church. Can we do better? We can. But it begins with individual men and women of God who see very clearly what the goal is in our worship. The question this morning is, how is your vision? Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you this morning for the gift, for the delight, for the absolute pleasure that you give us in worshiping you. And Lord, we pray that as your people, we can do what you've instructed us in your word, to sing to you with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that we can, to the glory of God and in the unity of the gospel, stand together as young and old, that you will, within this congregation, help our young people to be patient with our older folks, glad to defer, but that at the same time, you will raise up seasoned saints who will be uh, passionate about reaching unreached people and being willing to sacrifice their preferences in worship. Lord, we are a family of faith. We have got to learn how to do this together better for your glory and for the sake of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' strong, beautiful, and saving name.